Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 299. Oh, it's exciting, isn't it? And I've got an exciting guest today as well. I'm joined today by James Mangold. Oh, God, I was excited about this. It's a mini episode because he didn't have much time, but I could not resist it. I'm such a big fan of this guy's work from Walk the Line to Copland to uh, Logan, obviously, 310 to Yuma, uh, Girl Interrupted, Identity, I loved Identity, you know, I'm I'm such a fanboy f- for this dude, and his new film, Le Mans 66, is going to be in my films of the year, and I speak to him about it in this chat, that I went in not particularly as a man excited to watch a film about race cars, <laughs> But I loved it. The performances are amazing. He's amazing. You can always tell that when it's someone I'm really excited to meet and hope to work with at some point. Um, obviously, after we'd stopped recording, I said to James, look, man, I'd love to uh, I'd love to work with you down the line. Um, it's looking at the, the moment like I'm going to get two, hopefully one or two more acting gigs in before the end of the year, which is great news. I love these last minute ones at the end of the year. Um but yeah, God, I'd love, to, I'd love to work with Mr. Mangold at some point. Um, but we had a really good chat. We really got into a lot of stuff. So um, I hope you enjoy it. On the acting front, I need to tell you, you've got two days left. If you're listening to this on Friday, you've got two days left to buy tickets for Kill Ben Like. Um, it's in cinemas the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of November. But you can only buy tickets up to November 17th. The reason for that is you're buying them through our screen. So if you go to our screen, O-U-R, I know my Essex accent makes it, I could be saying anything. I could be saying, ah, scream. Um, but I'm not. It's our screen. Um, and look up Kill Ben like, oh, I've, I've, I mean, I've been slinging the link everywhere. Just go on any of my socials. But yeah. If you go there and grab your tickets, then um, you can come along. I really, I'd love you to see it in the cinema. It's a dark comedy murder mystery. Um, so yeah, come and see. Kill Ben Like. Um, grab your tickets. I'm going to be in attendance with a few other members of the cast and crew at the Odeon Swiss Cottage. Um, this is all on the Friday, the 22nd. Odeon Swiss, Cotti- Swiss Cottage. The View Piccadilly. And the view Shepherd's Bush. Um, there'll be a mixture of kind of appearances where we do that cool thing where they ask, they invite us out and we get a clap. And then Erwan, the director, will probably say some stuff and then we'll say, enjoy the film. <laughs> and then we'll go and I'll be just super excited because I've never got to do that. It's well good. Um, and then at one of them, we'll do a and a afterwards, but there'll be stuff going on. So, yeah. Come along to that, please. It's rather exciting. As I've mentioned a few times, I'm doing a thing that I nicked off off of a comedian called Theo Vaughn. He does this with some of his comedy tours. If you are listening to this and you are a single parent, um, if you're listening to this and you want to go and see this film, reach out to me on socials. Um, easiest way probably is a direct message on Facebook and I will sort out covering your childcare uh, costs not covering your childcare personally. I'm not going to come and babysit for you. I need to be at the screenings, but I'll cover your childcare costs. Uh, we'll f- figure it out. We'll sort a PayPal or a bank transfer or whatever we need to do. Cause yeah, it's a hard gig, man. And yeah, some of the most inspirational people 
I've been friends with over the years have been single parents and I know it can kind of it's a beautiful thing but it can also put your kind of social life I guess on hold a bit I I don't know if I count the cinema as social life because I prefer to go to the cinema on my own but you're 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 outside of the house without a child clinging to you or you having to to keep them alive um life so yeah reach out and i'll i'll sort that out and we'll figure it out you have to buy your own own tickets but um whatever but as i said those tickets are only available for two more days they're available till november 17th if you haven't bought a ticket by then you will not to be able to buy a ticket as you will see there's numerous screenings that have already reached the their minimum ticket sales but there's more available and there's a few that are close to reaching their minimum ticket sales if you buy tickets for one that doesn't reach its minimum ticket sales you won't get charged that's not how it works it only happens if if the screening goes ahead obviously it'd be outrageous if they just stole your money but yeah kill ben like on our screen o-u-r-s-c-r-e-e-n-e come see it but i mean that aside there's a film that's in cinemas that you don't have to buy tickets in advance and do some mad deal with because it's a massive film with massive actors in and it's amazing it's called Le Mans 66 and it is out now in cinemas um I said I can't recommend it enough but let's get on with the podcast because we're going to talk about it this is episode 299 of James Mangold Um, I'm joined today by J- James Mangold. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Um, ha- how are you finding the, uh, the 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 big promo push? It's always a weird one at the end. A long time after pr- production, you then get you to go be into excited this about strange it again. vortex of of selling. Yeah. Um, it's part of the job, yeah. and it's also a chance to kind of try and reach audiences. I mean, one of the goals for this movie, in many ways, is is one of the risks of this film was we're making a kind of big movie for grown-ups. Yeah. And um, one of the challenges is that a lot of adults, people over 30, just don't go to the cinema anymore. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can blame the studios or you can blame the audiences. I think it's a little of each. But the the reality is that they're not going to make intelligent films uh, with adult themes Yeah. if we don't go see them. Yeah. Uh, so it um, part of it is just I'm on a mission to try and get people out to the theater. I, I completely agree. And I think there's a myth that it's only superhero movies or blockbusters that need to be experienced in the cinema. I think all good films, the cinema is a different experience. It holds your attention in a way watching at home doesn't. Well, also, it's, it's in uh, darkness. It's surrounding you. You're consumed. You're not glancing at your phone and so on and so forth. Also, there are, um, while there are exceptions, if you took a lot of television shows and put them on the big screen, you'd suddenly see how they fall apart. Yeah. Um, that the the requirements of the big screen make greater demands on people like me to tell yeah. a story um, in a cinematic way, in a more artful way, in a way that extends the scrutiny of yeah. that kind of examination and the bigness of the, just the scale of the screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you that, that it's going to go away if we don't, if we don't consume them, but also it's not just movies made for cinema. Also it's, it's for me that there are adult themes, whether you end up seeing it on a television or not, that is, that is, I'm very frightened that, you know, I don't want to be part of the, 
uh, putting people to sleep. You know, yeah. mov- movies are a lot of entertainment has become a kind of anesthesia um, yeah. that it's just a way to pass two hours. I don't want to. I don't want to pass two hours. Yeah. I want to. I want you to have something you remember. I don't work for two years on a movie or longer just to create a diversion. You yeah. know, um, I want to create. It's like if I were a chef. I want a meal you're going to remember. Yeah. Not just a meal that serves the purpose. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's, in a sense, still what I consider my mission, you know, when I set off to make a film. I completely agree. It's kind of, there's a there's a common term and, and belief. And I think it's often from people just having heard it before that they go to the cinema to es- escape the real world. I don't think it has to be that. I think it can add to the real world. It can en- enrich the real world. It can be part of it. It doesn't have to be a switch your brain off. And as you say, just kill a few hours. Yeah, but it also doesn't have to be not fun. I mean, yeah. I think one of the things that our movie, I mean, uh, if it is an audience's press managed to knock off a movie one way or another, if you make a film that's actually pleasing to an audience, it's called almost pejoratively a crowd pleaser or yeah. a, uh, meaning it's a, it can't possibly have meaning if it's fun. Well, yeah. that's not true. Yeah. A lot of the movies you remember all our lives can be both moving or action packed, but also um, have joy in them or comedy as well. But I absolutely agree with you. I just, I, I'm so careful to say it because I don't think this movie is work yeah. to watch. I don't think movies should be a kind of medicine that you have to take that should be painful. But I do think that, um, to the degree we use anything to escape the world, it's why the world is getting more and more out of our control. Yeah. Is that every time we escape, um, we're ceding control of our universe to people who are chosen not to escape yeah and they get twice as much power yeah yeah completely that's perfect and uh, i think you're completely right i went into this film i'm a big fan of your work but i went in and i thought i'm not that into into to to racing um i think we're all i think netflix is quite responsible for us all being hyper aware of running times and i was like it's over over two hours in my kind of film nerd youth that was a bonus it feels now you kind of oh this is scary is yeah. is it going to be too long but i thought it was beautiful that it's about a 24-hour race which you'd think would be a long thing to watch but flies by and it's the same with this i saw the two and a half hour or, or near enough running time but it 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 flew by i felt the energy was just so and as you said, it wasn't a chore to get through. It wasn't work. No. It was, well, it was my hope exciting. is certainly not. I think that the whole idea, whether it's whether it's over two hours or not, is is my job is really to try and take you on a journey um, and one you'll remember. And yeah. that um, efficiency can't be the only thing at at your concern. Um, you're coming out to the movies to see great performances, yeah, great action, um, and left thinking or motivated or inspired by something and. Um, that for me also the long, I think audiences are getting used to longer form works yeah. because, because of, of places like Netflix where you end up watching 13 hours yeah. in the life of a queen or, uh, or, or even, um, Fleabag or yeah. anything where you're kind of, these are long form pieces with really rich characterizations. And, and I don't want to make films that seem like the characterizations are drawn on the head of a pin, you know? Yeah. Um, and also this is an epic ensemble film. You're watching both the corporate machinations that got us to this race and the stuff going on on the ground. I think yeah. you also make a really good point that the, 
I too didn't give a shit about racing. I don't. Yeah. I don't. Motorsports are Can not it's something my that fo- could put people off, thinking, "Oh, it's not really my thing." Yeah. This is for if it, if it helps anyone get out to the cinema, I didn't. I didn't care about motorsports either, <laughs> and that the that my attraction were these unique characters, and yeah. in many ways. The movie exists uh, for a long stretch as nothing but a kind of effort to build and a struggle for these characters to get the power and the access to the money and the parts they need to build the best car. But lastly, I think the it's just an interesting point, which is that why are motorsports not exciting when inherently it seems like it should be a thrilling world? And I think for for most of us, it's that, first of all, I think the presentation of most auto racing on television is inherently boring. Yeah. Um, that we watch a couple specs drive around in a circle on a on a we can hardly see them or hear them. We certainly don't know what's going on in the car. If the yellow car is passing the red car, we don't know why. If the yeah. blue car is falling behind the orange car or pulling into the pits, we don't know why. Someone just goes, "Well, they're pulling into the pits. Must be some trouble there." And you're going, yeah. "Well." I don't know. I don't. I can't feel the strategy. I need more. And that was very much my goal in making the film was to go, how can we put you behind the wheel so you understand every time he hits the accelerator or downshifts or pulls into the pits, you know why. You understand every part of the struggle. Anyone could. Certainly, if I can, anyone could, because I'm not a born um, racing enthusiast. So my goal was to invite you in in the same way that Steven Spielberg brought you into the invasion of Normandy yeah. um, to, to kind of put you at, in the trenches yeah. and allow you to feel the race from the, you know, from, the, from the track, from the very edge of the road. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the multiple characters in there as well and the multiple storylines. And I think that's another thing that made the pacing feel perfect and made the film fly by is every scene is moving towards and away from something. I'm also an actor. I studied under a guy called James Kemp, who was trained by Yet Malgram, who, who trained Alexander uh, McKinnock. Oh, um, yeah. and, 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 or McKendrick, sorry. Yeah. And, and I know that he's someone that, 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 that mentored you early on, or, or at least you learnt from a lot. How key is, is putting all of the kind of, particularly at this point in your career, maintaining it, all of the little minutiae of the small techniques and approaches into such a grand, huge story and experience and not getting kind of bl- blinded by, it's it's racing cars, there's potential crashes, there's potential death, there's potential corporate espionage, kind of all this kind of thing. Well, my goal is to make every scene as interesting or as exciting as the racing scenes, if not more so. I mean, it goes both ways. One, mm. one of the things... You know, I certainly learned from Sandy McKendrick, um, yes. and who who I was uh, was my teacher for four years, and I was also his teaching assistant for two years. Um, who, uh, who was a, a brilliant director and also um, a great great teacher. Was, Particularly of ensemble pieces as well. Again, it yes, feels like this sweet lady killers, success, and sweet smell yeah, of lady success. killers. Yes, the. Um, uh, is that you try and keep the narrative dancing. You try and keep it moving right. at all times. That that what is the essence of the scene? And you try and think in terms of sequences and not scenes, how these things leave together, interleaf with one another, yeah. as opposed to uh, opposed to scenes of themselves with a beginning, middle, and an end. The scenes become parts or Legos and bigger kind of movements, musical movements, will you, yeah, if I you will, that. of the film. But also that detail, what you're talking about is performance detail and, 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 and the, the, the stuff of life that makes things believable. And I think that's one of the first things that gets for, 
forgotten in movies these days. And I think it's so much about when someone says, oh, well, those performances were so great. Uh, obviously, a huge amount of the credit goes to amazing actors, but it's also the props and the detail work and the extras and the other supporting players and that you feel like you've entered a world yeah. that you believe. I don't personally think making a science fiction film or a Western is any different than making a period film or even a contemporary one. In every movie, I feel like I have to create a world yeah. and introduce you to a world that's new. If I'm making a movie about New York City cops, I have to introduce you to the specific unique rules and, and language of that world. If I'm making a movie about racers, ditto, same thing. If I'm making a a movie that takes place um, in the Marvel universe, same thing. Yeah. Meaning that each movie has to function in a way, inviting you into a very specific and fully created world. Even if you're only seeing a small bit of it, you have to feel that what might be right outside the frame in any moment is an equally convincing moment. Yeah. Does it take a lot of discipline to maintain that outlook and approach as a director? Because, I mean, you mentioned the Marvel universe. I think Logan's an amazing example there of it was a Western. It was essentially a Western or a samurai or a revenge Certainly. movie kind of yeah. thing. And at that point, I, I loved the superhero movies, but they had become very, they'd become tropes Formulaic. themselves. Kind yeah. Of, yeah, it's, it's, it'd become a genre of itself rather than a superhero movie is the subject. The genre is then open to, to interpretation. Um, so is that a tough thing to kind of not f fall into those traps i guess and similarly with a sports movie sports movies traditionally have certain um structures and, and plot points and i think le mans 66 steps away from that and, and makes it a, a world as you said well it's so interesting i mean i do think that all the most successful marvel movies all there is i don't think there really is a uh, a genre called superhero movie yeah i do believe that you know if you talk about the avengers films for instance I think they all fit into kind of the great war picture mode of like a bridge too far, these kind of cast of thousand kind of uh, efforts against a common villain. Yeah. Um, everyone's got a little storyline. People are hither and thon. You're cutting between them, um, all leading to kind of one great battle. When you talk, but there's other Marvel movies that are in the vein of a buddy comedy or in the yeah. vein of a kind of a farce or, or, um, exist. Um, Ant-Man is like, it's a heist yes, movie. Essentially. Yeah. It's some, a comedic heist yeah, movie. Yeah. yeah. And the, so that, that I think all the most successful ones, um, exist in some form actually within a genre, a, a known genre. And yeah. certainly Logan for me, was a chance to make uh, uh, something with a kind of almost Western or noir vibe to it. And I yeah. believe noir and Westerns are really linked to one another. Sure, and sure. Um, But also, for me, what, what the greatest noir films and Westerns did was be moving, engage you in character. Um, because I do think too many blockbusters, Marvel or not, um, seem to rely now on just sensory overload yeah. to keep you engaged. That yeah, I feel like I'm, you know, Malcolm McDowell in in that scene in Clockwork Orange with my eyes peeled open as they obliterate me with sound and fury. I actually have this habit watching certain kinds of overblown Hollywood productions of yeah. actually spontaneously going to sleep yeah. in the middle of all the sound. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I kind of have this, I don't know whether it's a primal narcoleptic urge to yeah. just tune it out. Overload kind yeah. of just yeah. my, my, my brain just wants to turn off. Yeah. And it's not as much just because it's really loud or cutting fast, which I'm totally hip to, but that I don't give a damn about the characters. And yeah. the, the second I don't give a damn about the characters – it, um, and I think filmmakers find themselves in this position. They have to keep increasing the level 
of action, number of explosions, and the amount of sound and music pumping at you just to hold you because they're not going to – at a certain point in a movie, if you're an hour in and you don't give a shit about the characters, you're going – they're going to have to do something to hold you. And what they do is just poke you with needles yeah. you know, and keep sticking you with louder and louder and more explosive things with the hope that just the sheer spectacle yeah. will keep you emotionally engaged. And you know, for some, that may work. Yeah. For me – I mean, they're it, amazing it looking needles. Of course, still, yes. Yeah. Well, well, it's money. What yeah. you're looking at is money. Yeah. And just like a military parade, if you spend enough billions, you can put some, some – fancy shit on the in the parade but the yeah. fact is if there's nothing holding it together but a display of of technical prowess then it runs thin because we've all gotten a bit blasé we all know yeah they can do that they can make old actors young they can make the world anew they can put me on a different planet they can paint whatever they need out the window they can make we know what you can do yeah um but that in some sense we still want to be fooled we want to fall into a world and not be aware of the artifice you know when i go to a magic show i don't want i want to believe that they're making it happen live on the stage yeah yeah i love that and i, I love the 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 mention of, of western and noir there and, and the comparison for the the building of characters because i think comic book movies have also gone down the route at times of going overkill on the amazingly witty and funny dialogue and the beauty of of westerns and noir was they had that dialogue but it was sparse it was it was sprinkled on there's a a, a rapper poet i'm, I'm f- friends with and one of his lines is why say in 10 words what you can say in two and why say in two what you can shut the fuck up and do and i think That's that great. i think that feels perfectly in logan in, in there is these there are these amazing little moments of great dialogue and great quips but it's not no you're not the dialogue, dialogue going, becomes here yes. it is here it is when we need it dialogue becomes twice as interesting and powerful when it's used um, a to express a moment, a, a point with an economy and poetic uh, poetry that moves us in its economy, in its in its to the pointness. I mean, my rule about dialogue is that so much of what we say in life is an excuse or a lie. Yeah. Um, that that or just just crap we say to one another to fill the time and have something to exchange weather blah 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 how are you I'm good da, 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 da. that we're playing a kind of warm up tennis um, uh, but none of it is really deep yeah. it's just a kind of formality of human exchange and that the way a movie gets to something deeper is to look beyond the words um, the way a movie becomes cinematic is to imagine that the words are actually a kind of denial or distraction. And that the real truth is underneath the words. And yeah. so that the camera can seek the contradiction yeah. uh, um, that lies behind the words, which can be only half the truth. You know, um, uh, just because a woman or man tells each other they love one another in a movie doesn't mean they do. Yeah. Um, people say, I love you all the time in life. And it's a crock. So that the the point is, are they looking at the other person like they love them? Mm-hmm. Because that's the key. Because the camera is a, you know, is a kind of x-ray and it can see our thoughts. It's, that's beautiful. Me and my partner argue over this quite a bit because I, I completely agree. I feel that the the moment that I love you became a, a response, it loses all value. I think one of the, the greatest and most emotional lines in cinema history is in, in Star Wars when L- L- Leia says to Han, I love you, and he says, I know. And I don't think that's a, a, a sassy quip. I think uh, he's not he's, – he's saying he's I know. Honest. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, and, and there's a beauty in that. And he hopes – Throughout the restaurant, he's shown her he loves her. He doesn't have to say just the 
token response of I love you too because it's a film because it's it's a moment yes I, I it's, think it's all of those things of it speaks these. to his resistance yeah. to the norms yeah it speaks to the fact that he doesn't play by the rules yeah. of those norms and it also speaks to his magnificent ego yeah and the, and and the um uh but the but the reality is that and it also defies the norms, which is what movie making and screenplay writing is all about. The way we hold your attention is to buy is, you know, you don't want to see an ice skater do the same double axle they did at last year's Olympics. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the last uh, Olympics, they, you want to see them do something new. So I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Who needs that? Yeah. It's like, I love you. I know we'll be remembered forever. Yeah. And the, and that's, that's a revelation of character as well as a confirmation of feeling. And, um, of course, it's true that dialogue remains a way of kind of improvising and dancing on reality as opposed to our best way of expressing it. In cinema, at least in film, the building block of reality is the human eyes and the way we look at one another. Yeah, yeah. Um, which mean, doesn't – which can't lie. No, ex- exactly. And, and it shows when that's not nailed. It shows when that's not there or when it's being f- – phoned in the camera the camera reveals all in in that respect yes um speaking of the camera um you return to working with uh faden as your as your cinematographer on this yeah. and uh, how important is it to find someone that you click with and can work with and have that shorthand in getting because the 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 glowing breaks scenes in this is some of the most exciting cinema i've ever seen a visual moment that looks be- 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 beautiful but is also building the tension so much and really d- doing stuff that words can't. And that comes down t- to a shared vision in cinematography, Absolutely. right? Well, he's like a brother. I mean, we've made five pictures together. Yeah. We've done a couple TV pilots, even commercials together. And the um, whenever he's available and the movie's timing is right, I'm thrilled to be able to work with him because yeah. we both see things the same way. Um we both came from independent cinema and find ourselves working with studios. Um, I I actually don't find that experience very different from one to the other. Um, You have bigger toys on a studio picture, but that the essential battles remain the same as they were when I made independent films. But also we carry a kind of classical sensibility. I'm not interested. There's a, there's uh, an aesthetic that's developed in the last 15 years, largely uh, off of, television of multi-camera shooting, shooting with a bank of cameras at the same time, which Mm. produces very cutty films with a host of angles, um, but none of which feel composed for the moment. Um, I'm very big on trying to make the shot not coverage, which to me, the word sounds like a diaper, like just (laughs) do you have your coverage? (laughs) Do you have your... Do you have your diaper on? It's like, no, do you have the right shot for this moment? And yeah. if you have the right shot for this moment, you don't need any other shot. Yeah. And and to me, that builds – if you can have that kind of agreement, which I do with Faden, uh, um, a same sensibility about the right shot for a scene, which, by the way, is not something to the filmmakers who listen to you. I don't think that's something that necessarily you've storyboarded or decided in advance. It can be. But it also, I think the biggest key to directing and the biggest lie about directing is that you have folks like me that come out and talk about how, like how they saw the whole film in advance. They put mm. a wet rag on their head and, and now you have the drudgery of shooting this dream you had. Yeah. And it'll only be a compromise and a letdown because yeah. it will never be as good get, as this get film. Get it out of my head. Yes. I need it out. <laughs> I, I think it's a complete lie. I think that the, that directors like Hitchcock, uh, 
created this kind of image of, of, of that you see the movie in advance and you go through the drudgery of shooting it. Although all evidence to the contrary, um, he shot other kinds of shots of the same scenes. He did multiple takes. He did, in fact, have an editor. They made choices about how they put these scenes together and made discoveries in the cutting room. Um, Both things are true. Of course, I couldn't make a film like Le Mans 66 without planning it. But I also feel that what I often, because I teach sometimes, like Sandy did, um, I I feel almost uh, indebted to after Milos Forman and Sandy McKendrick were such wonderful teachers of mine. One of the things I often find students are doing is they arrive with a plan. And then any time the world takes them off that plan, they feel this sense of loss, of crushing loss of their own vision. And when I was shooting my film Copland many years ago, I discovered in the first week I would arrive doing the shots I imagined and I would set up some scene with Sylvester Stallone and Robert De Niro and I would shoot it. And then the next day, as part of my little envelope of crap I'd get as directing the film in my car, they'd have the contact sheets from what the stills guy, you know, the yeah. stills man had taken on the film. And I would look at what the stills guy took and I go, this shit looks much better than what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And I realized the stills guy was looking at what I set up and finding the best shot. Yeah. And I was setting something up and never looking at it, just shooting the shot I had decided a week before was going to be the shot. When you weren't actually there. I wasn't looking. I wasn't looking it, yeah. at the way the light was. I wasn't looking at the sky. I wasn't reacting to the way the light was playing on Bob De Niro's face on this, at this moment at 1030 AM on this street corner. And that you have to be alive to both. You have to be alive to the plan you made and also alive, just like an army general to how you're going to adapt your plan to the reality you find in the field. And that isn't in essence, a compromise yeah. that is directing, yeah. meaning it is marshalling your troops and adapting to reality and making something even better, hopefully, yeah. than your small brain could have imagined alone in your flat. Yeah, yeah. And it's logical to think that you would learn more when you're there. What, how, how would you have? have, have yes, have, but it's also humbling, it. meaning it's it's the, the idea, because so often in an interview like this, the question is, did you envision all this in advance? Did you know exactly where? And the very self-flattering answer is, oh, yes, of course, we planned extensively. I boarded yeah. in previous. Yeah. And, uh, and it all, because it says me, me, me. The answer is saying, it's all me, Jim. Yeah. I did it all. And any other answer implies, well, I did a lot, but then I got there and other people did some great shit and I took advantage of it. Yeah. And and that's more the truth I, yeah. I found with any of the great directors I've met is that there's a certain amount of idea you have about what you're going to do. But if you're working with Joaquin Phoenix, if you're working with Christian Bale or Vanessa Redgrave or Winona Ryder or Robert De Niro um, or Russell Crowe, all of which I've had the pleasure to direct, yeah. you have to be alive to what they're bringing. Yeah. And sometimes they're bringing something unique and indescribable that you never imagined and not even was never in a rehearsal. And it might not even ever been in another take, but it's happening right here, right now. And are you going to take advantage of this magic or are you going to roll right over it with your plan? Yeah. And I think so much to me is weaving this tapestry, gathering these seashells with your plan in mind, with the idea, the mission statement of the movie in mind, but also not overruling or overlooking the beautiful gifts of your collaborators. Is is, is that something that you've learned and adapted to over the years? Because, I, I mean, yes. from the I mean, start- one of the reason I'm telling you the story about Copland is I'm saying I didn't know this when I yeah, began. Yeah. I, uh, like every young director, I think you feel like you must – 
you need to act like you think Napoleon would act and you, you, you know where, which you lead everyone forcefully. You need to, to you, everyone will doubt your ability if you ever answer, I don't know. Yeah. But I found the most confident thing to ever say as a leader is, I don't know. God, I wish our political leaders would once in a while actually admit they don't know. 100%. Um, that, you know, that's a very confusing question and I'm going to need more time to answer it. Yeah. Would be an adult answer. Um, yeah. and it's one I've learned I can use on a set. Like, that's really interesting. Let's try that. I don't know. Yeah. And and to me, that's what yields me. But that comes – honestly, it's only come in time from knowing that I'll probably not get fired. Yeah. So that the, <laughs> yeah, that you yeah, no longer yeah. have to maintain this pretense of, of being a know-it-all. Yeah. That you can actually admit to being – I mean, like, I mean, this becomes broader philosophically, but like in all things in life, we're all so much better when we're not full of shit. And if you can speak what you're actually feeling and tell the truth, um, then everyone around you feels like honored by your, your honesty and matches it, um, mirrors it. And that not only translates to working behind the scenes, but even on camera, if you're an honest director, um, if you're speak, uh, actors more than anyone, I'm sure, you know, are, it's acting isn't professional lying. It's professional truth telling. Yeah. Yeah. So actors are more attuned and more sensitive than anyone to someone who's, who's handing them a load of shit. And by the way, they have in their lives, actors, if they're stars, have more people telling them bullshit than anyone else. Be, oh, you look beautiful today. Oh, you know, you're so amazing. You're little, oh, no, no, that was great. You did great. That's great. All day long. They know sometimes they're not on. They know sometimes they don't look great. They know sometimes their hair's out of place or their belly's sticking out. They know. So whenever someone answers them with nothing but an unending stream of glory and positives, they know in a little bit inside, they may think that's a very kind person, but they start to detach. Yeah. They no longer depend upon you for reality. And the one thing I feel like I've learned, and I've learned this from the great actors I've worked with, is that they depend upon me directing. And me directing is me offering them criticism or or commentary or an accurate mirror of what I'm feeling. Um, as Bob De Niro said to me a long time ago, he said, you know, don't be in awe of me. I don't like to work with young directors because usually they're in awe of me. And he goes, I need you to talk to me. I need to know what you're thinking. Your voice will never bother me. Tell me whatever you're thinking. Even if I'm in the middle of a scene, shout it out to me. If I've lost track or I'm missing something, just say, do it again. Ba, ba, ba. And like, you're not fighting for him. You're not getting it. You're not getting the answer. And let him, let him use his, use these uh, short note to try and find the scene again. And that that actor-director relationship is so hard to describe. And all I can say is that among the most confident and accomplished actors in the world, many of whom I've gotten a chance to dance with, they're the ones who most want to be directed. Yeah. And it is the beginning it's actors. Right it, is the, it is the people at the, at the start of their, their career who are similar to what I was saying about directing. It is the actors who are young and less experienced who are most insecure and least and most hostile toward direction because they think they're supposed to know everything themselves. Yeah. They just like that director I was describing, they think they're supposed to on arrive on set and whatever character they've been practicing in their bathroom mirror is yeah. the one they want to do on the scene. But sometimes the character they've been practicing is not acknowledging what the other actors around them are giving or what the space has changed about yeah. the scene. And so they worked out something that's great in their flat when they're reading the uh, scene through with their girlfriend, yeah, yeah. but it is not a working in the scene where they're actually in reality with these other people. Yeah, I, I, I love that. It, it makes me think of the kind of when you're poor, 
you want to give the illusion of wealth by getting the most expensive clothes wearing the most wearing expensive clothes. and when, and when, you're when rich, you look you at do rich the people they just wear anything they want and yeah it's yeah, all good absolutely. so um i mean i'll start to wrap things up it feels like we could chat for hours on this so I'll, I'll move things on but i wanted obviously you've touched upon the amazing people you've got to work with so you have a wealth of people at your disposal but i think what's equally exciting about this film is kind of is the supporting cast people like a, a Ray McKinnon, who I think is, he's is fabulous. I think he's where Ben Mandelson was a few yeah. years back. Where, where who? He, who was Ben, ben Mandelson? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. People now, everyone now knows he's amazing. He was amazing for ages, but yeah. then everyone kind of got switched onto it. And and Ray's one that I've kind of I've caught him in a few things, and he's taken my breath away. And it's it feels like now the wider world is going. Oh wow, this guy can do what you can do so how is it to kind of find the right people in like i guess the casting of it is getting the, the right team mix. rather than just here's here's the big names that well you go for everything but you go for the ray mckinnon um john bernthal yes. uh, josh lucas um uh uh tracy letts is henry ford the second is is a marvel um yeah and it's it's you cast the strongest possible actors you can and use every bit of persuasion and leverage you can to get them to do the bloody movie, even though the role might not be huge. Yeah. And that because, like I was saying a little while ago, my job is to create a world. And if my job is to create a world, then it isn't only the two main actors who are, have to be excellent. It's you, I want you leaning in in every direction as if the movie could wander off my two leads and follow anyone and yeah. the movie would continue to be compelling. Um, and the reality of the predicaments of our protagonists are only as good as their antagonists and their supporting players, their allies and their foils. And so you want great people everywhere. I'm always looking for people playing a piece of who they really are. You know, John Bernthal is an ex-boxer and he's tough as nails and he's super macho, but yeah. he he's also one of the most tender-hearted, kind people you will ever meet. Mm. And Lee Iacocca, I saw, is a very, very sympathetic character at Ford. Um, he comes from working-class background, immigrant parents, uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, and works his way up at a very waspy um, Ivy League company and is kind of a loner there. And... Uh, um, certainly as Phil Remington, Ray McKinnon plays kind of the heart and soul of the Shelby American team, the guy who kinds of kind of holds it together for Shelby, yeah. um, who's Matt's character, and and also is the kind of mechanical genius that also is kind of keeping everything running. Yeah. Um and he too came from World War Two and was a um, was a I believe an airline airplane mechanic, an airplane engine mechanic, and then came out of um, the war and got into racing and applied all that wisdom he had yeah. learned working on, he's, on engines. He's the unheralded AD. Yes. He's holding it all together. He's sitting yes, there. he absolutely is. Tying it all up. Yeah, well, thank yeah. you very much for your My time. Pleasure. I'll end it there. It's been an absolute what great joy, and I love the film. Joy. Thank yeah, you very thank much. You. Be well. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was James Mangold. I think you could hear the excitement and uh, what's the word? Uh, oh, I can't think of any words. I'm like a, I've made a, a living as a writer and a wordsmith and I can't think of the word. Admiration is the word I was looking for. My excitement and admiration uh, for James and to be getting to sit down and chat with him. So I hope you enjoyed that chat. As I said, 
Kilben-like. Two more days to buy the tickets. Ourscreen.com. Tickets are only available till November 17th. There's screenings up and down the country if you get enough, if the, tic- if the minimum orders are reached. You can find all the details on our screen. It's for November 22nd, 23rd and 24th. So come and see Kill Ben Like. You could go to patreon.com slash Pip and get involved there. But quite frankly, right at this moment, I'd rather you come and see Kill Ben Like. You could buy some merch at speechdevelopmentrecords.com. But quite frankly, right now, I'd rather you came and saw Kill Ben Like in the cinema. But I'd also love you to go and see Le Mans in this, Le Mans uh, 66 in the cinema. Because as you can hear from that conversation... It's a real cinema movie. It's, yeah, it's cracking. All right, I'm going to go. I'll be back next week with, I'm not going to say who my guest is next week because I think I'm moving them around depending on if I can get someone um, that I want to talk to next week. I've got a few recorded, but I've got one potential time-sensitive one that we're just firming up and confirming, so it might be a quick turnaround on that. Um, But, yeah. I will see you all next week, or I'll see you at the screening, which is in next week on the 26th. Anyway, this has been the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 299, with the amazing James Mangold. Ta-ta.